All right, we are in Colossians 2, 8 through 23. It's a fairly long portion of Scripture, not so long as, you know, it's not like a huge block, but I'm going to go ahead and read all of it, and then uh, we'll kind of dive in and unpack it together. So we're in Colossians 2, beginning at verse 8, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Colossae, says this, See to it. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled with Him who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands." By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands." This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going into detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. All right. Uh, In the midweek email this past week, I wrote about the sirens. Uh, If you're a fan of ancient mythology, Greek or Roman mythology, the sirens were these creatures. They weren't exactly humans, but they were human-like. Some early depictions have them as being made half bird, half human beings. They had an island or islands, depending on which source you look at, and they would sing a song that was so intoxicatingly alluring that sailors, upon hearing the song, would become like intoxicated by it, and they would go after it, and they'd run aground. And the sirens in ancient mythology would do this. Sometimes they lured them to run aground so they could eat them, which is quite nasty, (laughs) you know. But uh, in ancient mythology, in Homer's Iliad, Odysseus, or Ulysses, uh, as he's sometimes called in the Roman sources, he defeated the sirens and their song by plugging his sailors' ears with earwax. And then he had his crew tie him to the mast. And so thus deafened and restrained, they went past the island without succumbing to the powers of the song that the sirens sang. They survived. In the Argonautica, which was written several hundred years later, a character named Orpheus defeated the siren song in a different way. He pulled out his lyre. He was like a bard, and he played such a beautiful song that it was greater than, in beauty than the song of the sirens, and it defeated the spell. And that crew also, you know, Jason and the Argonauts, they got past the island of the sirens as well. The reason I talk about these two stories is because Paul is really intent on helping the crew in the Colossian church not run aground on the rocks of some siren songs that were being sung in his day. And it's interesting what he does here, because he's not just like Ulysses, plugging up their ears with earwax, 
And he's not just like Orpheus playing a more beautiful song. He kind of combines both. He really goes hard after, as much as he can, restraining the Colossians, tying them to the mast of Jesus, as it were, and plugging up their ears to these deceptive errors. He really just wants to be like, yeah, I just wish these guys would shut up with their lies. But he also interspersed throughout his refutation of some of these bad, false teachings. He sings, he plays a beautiful song of Jesus. Uh, So he wants to show Jesus as who he was, who he is, in a way that would just in his sheer presence would defeat these shabby lies. But he also wants to warn them to avoid these lies altogether. Give no place for them in the midst of your fellowship. Here's the main idea of this passage we're going to be studying. I'm afraid that was a, I read for so long, verses 8 through 23, that it might be just kind of this big pile of words. And if I was to synthesize it down to like the main point of these verses, it would be this. Christ lacks nothing, and in him we lack nothing. That's the main point that Paul is trying to get across. This block of Scripture begins by saying, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And it ends in verse 23 by saying, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And there's the problem. There it is. Verse 23 states plainly that our problem as human beings is the flesh. That is our sin. That's the humanity problem that we all face. As the Bible says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. And Paul's warning to the Colossian Christians is that they must be on guard against false teachings that claim to offer something better than Christ, when in reality they are empty, vain, and useless for addressing the problem we all have. As I already said, the main idea we should walk away with from this portion of Scripture this morning is that Jesus lacks nothing, and we lack nothing in Him. These false teachings that Paul references, they all make a similar claim. In one way or another, they make the claim that something is lacking. Something's missing, either in Jesus or in our response to Jesus that the gospel points us towards and calls for. And those are very seductive arguments because they introduce the fear that maybe you got it wrong. Maybe you misunderstood. Maybe you're missing it somehow. Maybe there is some secret knowledge of God that has been withheld from you. Maybe there's some additional act that you must perform to complete your salvation, and if you don't do it, you remain outside. Maybe there is some power at work in the world that is greater. And some of us are particularly vulnerable to this line of attack that introduces doubts. I'm, uh, I'm trying to become a handier guy around the house. And Sarah and I have lots of DIY projects going over at the Beaver Lodge. That's what I call my house. And I am not particularly gifted or experienced in this area. And all you need to do to make me spiral into self-doubt is to come into my house, look at some project I'm doing, and say, "Eh, that's not the way I would have done it. (laughs) I hate that phrase. The good news is that only happens with every project that I do. So it happens a lot. And some of us are like that spiritually. We struggle with assurance, and our inner world always seems to be tipping towards doubt 
You heard and received truly the gospel at some point, but then along comes somebody who is just brimming with confidence, who says, no, 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 that's not the way to do it. That's not the way I would have done it. And you're shoved off your feet. Paul knows this. I've used the example many times before, and I stole it from my brother John, but he uses the example of, um, and I just find it so helpful when I think about this issue. If you were up in an airplane, and you had on a parachute, and you were about to jump, but sitting across from you was a guy who had an umbrella, and he is scoffing your parachute. He says, you're wearing one of those? This is definitely going to work, and that, I wouldn't do that. He's brimming with confidence in his parachute. He says, I watched Mary Poppins once. It works. <laughs> and, and you saw the kid who packed the parachute on the ground, and you have some doubts. You're worried about this thing. But they fling open the door. It's go time. And you said, this is what they gave me. I'm going to jump with it. And you jump out of that airplane in your parachute, having just enough faith in it to get out the door and the guy jumps out the plane with his umbrella, 100% confident it's going to work. It never, the doubt never crosses his mind. Tell me, who's going to land safely? You see, it's not the amount of confidence you possess. It's the object you put confidence in that matters. There are some great fools who have no doubt in their scheme and they're clutching to an umbrella. And there are some of you sitting here this morning in this very church who are tipping towards doubt, but what faith you have, you've put in an object worthy of it. Jesus, the gospel, it will catch you. It will bear your weight on the last day and the weight of all your hopes. Those promises are true. It's not the amount of faith you have, it's the object you've put faith in that matters. And Paul is saying to these people, these brand new baby Christians, a whole church made up of new believers, none of them have been walking with Jesus their whole life. These are mostly Gentile converts. They have no history in, even in Judaism. All of this is brand new. And Paul is writing to people that he knows some of them must be just on the verge of getting shoved off their feet and losing their footing, their stability in the gospel. And he's writing words of caution to them. Some of them he's saying, plug up your ears. <laughs> Stuff beeswax in there when these guys come around. And others of them he's saying, here, let me sing you a more beautiful song than what they're saying. In these verses, Paul does not identify one specific false teaching that's trying to creep its way into the Colossian church. But instead, he warns broadly against three strains of false teaching that were all interrelated and which were especially prevalent at that time. These are philosophy and empty deceit, human tradition, and what Paul calls elemental spirits of the world. Philosophy and empty deceit probably means any systematized worldview that was out of step with Jesus and the gospel. He also warns against human tradition, which is likely shorthand for Jewish beliefs and practices that were rooted not in God's revelation, but rather in rabbinical tradition or another phase of redemptive history. In the early church, Christianity, as it emerged out of Judaism, there was a real strong effort. We see this most strongly countered in the book of Galatians, um, where people were essentially trying to take Jewish practice and, and incorporate it into Christianity, which in Paul's view would have, and really in the view of the Bible, would have essentially made our faith rooted in works. We'll come back to that here in just a little bit. So there's philosophy and empty deceit, human tradition, and again, what Paul calls these elemental spirits of the world, which probably, which is language that Paul employs elsewhere to refer to demonic powers in the unseen realm, or to powers and authorities on the earth that were in the grip of demonic influence. 
So these are the three things that Paul, painting with a very broad brush, is warning the Colossian Christians against putting their faith in over and against Christ. Now, each one of these makes the claim that something is lacking. Either in Jesus himself or in the gospel, our response to what Jesus did for us. Philosophy and empty deceit comes along and says, you don't have all the information. There's hidden knowledge about God and secret wisdom that's not contained in your Bible. And if you would only listen to tap into this hidden source, well, you would access the secrets of the universe. There's something more. And you're just clinging to your, um, your parachute. <laughs> like, no, I believe in the Bible. Those false teachers who emphasized what Paul called traditions of men, what do they say is lacking? Well, they come along and say that there are all kinds of things that people must do in order to be saved. Jesus' sacrifice was not enough. Sure, they say, it's necessary. Oh, you need that. That's a big important part. But it's not all that's necessary. Jesus did his part, now you must do yours. And then comes along the third group of false teachers, and what, they, what do they say is lacking? Well, they say that Jesus is lacking in power. They say there are forces and beings more powerful and greater in authority than Jesus. These are false gods, angel worship, or the most slippery example of all, another version of Jesus who is not true to the Jesus we find in the Bible. So let's look at these three in Paul's response to them in order. Here's Paul's response to the argument of philosophy and empty deceit, that there's secret knowledge in the world. He says of Jesus, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And in verses 2 through 4, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Now, what this means is that Jesus, in coming to the world, gave us the fullest, most complete picture of God's revelation to man. You want to know who God is? Look at Jesus. There is no other stronger, more full representation of the divine than Jesus. Paul says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And along comes somebody who says, well, no, that's not true. There's actually another avenue by which you can get a better look at God and truth. And Paul says, no, no, no. Jesus is the living embodiment of the divine. All of who God is was put on full display in him, and what he lived out among us is the most complete, full revelation of who God is. All of God's holiness and perfection, his excellence and worth and beauty, they're all made visible and put on full display in the person of Jesus. In Jesus, the invisible became visible so the naked eyes of men could behold the glory of God. This is what the author of Hebrews was communicating when he said, in Hebrews 1.3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. To see Jesus correctly is to see and understand God. Jesus himself said in an exchange with his disciple Philip, Philip said to him, this is in John 14, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So there is no fuller understanding of God to be found than what we find in the person of Jesus. However, the world really does not either understand this or is constantly attacking this idea. I was listening, one day I was driving in Florida and I was listening to NPR. And there was somebody on NPR who was charting attitudes within the American church towards various hot-button social issues of our day. And they were expressing with hope that the church was becoming a more enlightened group. 
we were evolving in our views to come to this place where we were moving beyond what we had believed primitively for centuries. This was the view of the host on this NPR show. Now, that belief has at its root that there is something better than what has been revealed to us in Christ, in the Bible, the Word made flesh. It's the belief that there is something that's closer to God's heart than what we've always narrowly believed up to this point. It is the danger of philosophy and empty deceit to move on from to adopt the attitudes of this current generation and culture. It's a bit like if somebody came to you and said, well, the sun is a pretty good source of light, I guess, but you want to know where it's really at? Come check out my glow-in-the-dark frisbee. That's a secret kind of light. It's got a different vibe to it. It's different. It's better. It's, it's, it's not true, of course. But nevertheless, it remains prevalent. So the way Paul refutes the idea that there is some other knowledge of God to be found is to say nothing is lacking in Christ. That's it. In Jesus, we see the picture fully, and nothing's being withheld from you. Paul's response to those who taught that Jesus' sacrifice was not enough. Verses 11 through 14, he says this, "...in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands." This is a very interesting line, because who's Paul writing to? Paul is not writing to here to people who are steeped in the religious practice of Judaism. But he's talking about circumcision, and so he's writing to Gentile believers about this Jewish religious tradition, and he's saying that in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. In another place he says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you, in questions of food and drink, or with regards to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. And here again, he's addressing people who had this expectation that in order to complete your salvation, you had to check off these boxes. You had to do A, B, C, and D in addition to what Christ did for you. And Paul says, no, in Jesus, the whole record of our debt was canceled, that stood against us with its legal demands, and this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He says to the Colossian Christians, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So here again, they come along and say what's lacking is some things you must do to complete your salvation. And Paul's refutation of that is to say, no, the whole record of your sin debt was canceled in Christ, nailed to the cross, it's paid for. Completely, 100%. So again, his argument is, to refute this false teaching, is to say nothing's lacking in Christ. Jesus paid it all. We come here to the last one, which is this elemental spirits of the world. And really what they're saying is that Jesus is lacking in power. There are other beings who possess more ultimate power and authority than Jesus. And this is how he refutes them uh, in chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. He says, For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. 
All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In verse 10, he says, And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. So here he's clearly making the argument that these creatures are created. Jesus is their creator. He is first and foremost in power and authority in the world. Interestingly, though, and this is what I want us to see here, Paul links the elemental spirits of the world here to this business about law-keeping. Pay close attention to the flow of Paul's logic here. It says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. All these according to human precepts and teachings. Paul links this idea that there are beings greater in power and authority to Jesus with law-keeping. This is an interesting link, and I want us to close out our service here by giving thoughts here to this. This is not the only place where Paul does this. Consider another passage with me. This is in the book of Galatians, chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. He writes to the Galatian church, Formerly, when you, which is similar, by the way, this is also a Gentile convert church. Uh, but more explicitly in Galatians, the problem in that church are these folks who are trying to come in and say that it's your works that ultimately save you. Jesus was necessary. He's a key part. But now you must build on top of what Jesus did to earn God's favor through all these demands that he makes in his law. So he's writing the Galatian church and says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Here he uses the same logic that we find in Colossians, linking the elementary principles of the world to this business about law-keeping. Now, the main point of this passage is, don't turn back from Christ and become slaves of demons. Now, where do I get that from? You don't find the word slave, a demon, or Satan anywhere in this passage. But verse 8 says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Paul wants to reserve this word God for the one true God, but he knows that formerly the Galatians and also the Gentile Colossian converts who were receiving this letter that we've been studying They were in bondage to beings that they had called gods. And we know from a story in Acts 14, 8 through 18, that people in that part of the world worshiped the pantheon of Greek gods, Zeus and Hermes and others. And what's important for us to see in these two texts, one in Colossians, the other in Galatians, is that Paul does not deny the existence of these beings. He does not. He doesn't say there's no such thing as these beings that you were worshiping. What he does say is that they're not gods. We see the same thing in 1 Corinthians 8, 5. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things. In other words, he doesn't deny their existence, but he doesn't like the titles that they've appropriated for themselves. Paul admits that other so-called gods or lords do exist. And in 1 Corinthians 10.20, he makes clear that these beings are demons. What pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be partners with demons, he says. So in Galatians 4.8, Paul is saying that formerly the Gentile Galatians had not known the true God, but had been involved in demon worship. 
enslaved to demons who exercised their power through religious practices. And the danger they were facing now as new Christians is that they might turn back and become enslaved again after having tasted the joy and freedom of Christ in the gospel. Notice in verse 9 of uh, Galatians 4, not the verse we're studying, the passages we're studying, he writes, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Echoing very much the last line in verse 23 of the Colossians passage where these things are vain and useless in helping against your great sin problem. It's clear that what Paul is saying is that the beings referenced in verse 8 and the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world referenced in verse 9 are one and the same. And we know that he's talking about the same beings in Colossians 2 because he uses the same language. If you're following along in another translation of the Bible, you might be scratching your head at this moment because they use different words. The Revised Standard Version, handling this text in Galatians 4, says, You once were in slavery to these demonic beings. In verse 9, how is it that you want to turn back now to those same ever-enslaving elemental spirits? But other versions don't use the translation elemental spirits. The King James Version says, weak and beggarly elements. The NIV says, weak and miserable principles. And the NASB has weak and worthless elemental things. The Greek word behind all of this, and I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of this, is stoikaia. can have all those meanings, basic principles, elements of the material world, or spiritual beings standing between man and God. So the question is, which one fits the context better? And I think the connection between verses 8 and 9 makes it very likely that the best translation is elemental spirits. Because verse 8 talks about former bondage to spiritual beings. And verse 9 talks about the danger of returning to that bondage. But look at the connection between verses 9 and 10. This would suggest that the, Galatians, that the Galatians are returning not to evil spirits. They're not going back to worshiping Zeus, but they are being steered towards Jewish law. Verse 10 says, You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I have labored over you in vain. And in our letter to the Colossians, Paul makes the same link. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are alive and still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? So when you read verse 9 in the light of verse 10, again, I'm in Galatians 4 here. We're kind of jumping all over the place. The elemental things would seem to be legal ordinances rather than demonic spiritual beings. So which is it, Paul? I'm going to get to my point here in a minute. You've been very patient. Verse 9 says the Galatians are turning back from Christ to slavery. Verse 8 suggests that the slavery is to demons. Verse 10 suggests that the slavery is to legalism. The keeping of ordinances, holy days, festivals, all in an effort to earn God's favor. Paul is not contradicting himself. He is pointing us to a profound and subtle relationship between the elemental spirits of the world and law-keeping. Remember, the allure of false teaching is that it introduces the idea that something is lacking. Philosophy and empty deceit say you don't have all the information. Human tradition says what's lacking is your check in the boxes. You must complete your salvation. And these elemental spirits of the world are intent on persuading you that Jesus is not ultimate in power and authority. And here's the slippery intersection where they do their best work in the church today. Don't get me wrong. They would be pleased, absolutely tickled, if you went home and built a shrine and erected a statue and worshipped it. They'd love it. However, I think that's pretty unlikely. I think that's unlikely that you'll do that. I've gotten to know you pretty well, State Road. <laughs> 
And I think it's not the most likely possibility that you would go home and begin worshiping a statue that you had built and create a god. Now, don't get me wrong. Great swaths of humanity are today living under the false idea that so-called God they worship is ultimate in power and authority. That This sort of worship is real, and it is rooted in the elemental spirits of the world. However, this morning, I'm aware I'm talking to a crowd made up mostly of professing Christian believers at State Road AC Church. And again, most of you are not likely to engage in that kind of overt, open worship of a false god. So, if they cannot convince you that they are ultimate in power and authority themselves, here's what I want you to see and understand, and what Paul's pointing the Colossian Christians toward. They are just as pleased. If you would embrace the idea that you must save yourself, that you are the one who is ultimate in power and authority. You are the decisive agent of your own salvation. This is the link between these two things. These false teachers come along and they say, what's lacking is your correct response to what you're reading here. What's lacking is you operating to save yourself. The danger that Paul has in view here is that these new Christians would turn back from dependence on the Spirit of Christ and stop resting in dependence on what Jesus had accomplished for them and turn instead to dependence on themselves. And I can absolutely 100% see that happening to many of us here in this room. This is what Paul is warning the Colossian Christians about, and it's what he is now, even today, warning us through the pages of Scripture is still a prevalent threat today. The sirens are singing their song, and many are suckered in by it. They get shoved off their feet, and they're intoxicated and brought up on the rocks, the ruinous rocks. Rather than putting their trust in a savior, they are lured into trying to save themselves and they run aground and make a shipwreck of it all. So if ultimately your salvation depends on you, then what does that make you? That makes you ultimate in power and authority. And the elemental spirits of the world grin to look upon that in the human heart. They grin. Both of these passages, one in Galatians, the other in Colossians, give us an even deeper understanding of what happens when a person uses the law like that. Uh, In Ephesians, we're told that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And what we're witnessing in, well, what Paul is warning them against is taking the sword of the Spirit and falling on it in suicide. That's what legalists do. Instead of wielding it against sin, they just fall on it. And it kills them spiritually. Galatians 4.8 shows us that bondage to the law is really bondage to demons. That's what he's saying. Remember, demons at the first are fallen angels who, seized, who sought to seize the place of God. They are people who have a grasping desire for the place of God. And when they tried to seize the throne, as it were, they were thrown down, cast down. And what they're doing here in coming to you, coming to the church with this argument that you must save yourself, is they're saying, join us in having a grasping desire for the place of God. The Bible says you need a savior. We're going to tell you to save yourself. It's demonic. It's a grasping desire for Jesus' place. Jesus says, there's nothing lacking in me and in you, and there's nothing lacking in you through me. But then they come along and say, no, join us in our grasping desire for the place of God. You don't need a Savior. You can save yourself. 
The most astonishing thing in this passage is that Paul says that the, the, especially the passage in Galatians, is that Christians are in danger of going back to the slavery of their former Gentile pagan religions when they seek to earn God's favor through law-keeping. Their past was not Jewish law, but Gentile paganism and idolatry. So false teachers, sometimes we call them Judaizers, these rigorous moral monotheists, monotheists must have been thunderstruck to hear Paul say, if you begin to use the law to show God the merit of your virtue, to earn from him as a wage what he says he'll only give as a gift, then you come under the sway of demons and are no better off than if you were worshiping Zeus. In other words, Paul has uncovered for us a typical demonic scheme which is just as prevalent in the religions of the 21st century as it was in Paul's day. It is clean, it is moral, it is religious, and it is hellish. (laughs) John Piper says that here about this passage. It's hellish because it says something's lacking in Jesus. And you, in trying to save yourself, set yourself up as the ultimate power and authority, the decisive agent of your own salvation. However, Paul points to one fact that reveals that Jesus is greater in power and authority. He points to many, but the strongest we find here in verses 11 and 12. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. The powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. This is the ultimate display of power, victory over sin and death. And it vindicates Jesus as the ultimate power and authority. And I think there he is singing the song of Orpheus to defeat the sirens, you know. This is higher. This is better. This is more excellent. It's ultimate. Now, just be very patient with me. I know we're almost done. But there may be somebody listening this morning who's been hearing things like salvation and Jesus and maybe you don't yet understand it all. Let me just really quickly explain to you how a person is saved in Christianity. First of all, like verse 23 says, we all have a problem. We're all sinners. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's true for me and it's true for you. Everyone in this room has sinned. And... Romans 6.23 says that the wages of our sin, in other words, what we've earned and deserve, is death, punishment, wrath. But God doesn't want to give you what you've earned and so richly deserve. He wants to give you a gift, and that gift at the tail end of Romans 6.23 is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, a gift, of course, is very different from a wage, A gift is given because of the goodness of the person giving the gift, not your merit. A wage is something you earn and deserve. And the great news I can preach to you this morning with great confidence, because it's what God says in his word, is he does not want to give you what you deserve. He wants to give you a gift. It's on offer this morning. You can pick it up yourself or you can leave it laying there. But it's there. It's real, and it's true. And that's eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This gift is given to you not because you're good, but because God is awesome. He is amazingly good. Romans 5, 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you, not because of who you are, but because of who he is. And now Romans 10 says that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone. That's you, my friend. This offer is for you. And it's being extended to you this morning personally. Jesus paid it all on the cross. 
When Jesus died on the cross, God came to the earth in the person of Jesus. He put on a body of flesh, and he wore that body of flesh all the way to the cross. And when he was nailed to the cross and all of God's wrath was poured out on him, he took your penalty for all your sins. And if you would put your trust in him for salvation, all of his righteousness is transferred to your account. In his letter to the Colossians, he says that the record of your sin debt was canceled in Christ on the cross. He paid it. God is a respecter of decisions. You can say, yes, that's for me, or you can reject that offer. You're a free moral agent, but those are the terms Those are the terms. What he'll give you is a gift you cannot earn as a wage. In Romans 4, it says, Now to the one who who works, his wages are not considered a gift. They don't get the gift. They get what's coming to them. (laughs) And I don't want that for any of us, for me, for you. But to the one who puts their trust in Jesus, their faith is counted as righteousness. Amen. I want that. (laughs) God, please don't give me what I deserve. I need grace. Grace is a uniquely Christian concept. Grace says that what God wants to give you is not about your merit. It's all rooted in what Christ has done for you and not your own body of good works. I believe that many folks out walking the streets of Aristic County this morning have fallen under the sway of a a lie about how God gives salvation. They're in the grip of this error, which is nowhere in the Bible. What God himself has said is not present in this error that they've embraced wholeheartedly which is that on the last day, God will say you were better than most other people, (laughs) or perhaps better than some. God does not grade on a scale. Do you know what the uh, permitted amount of sin is that God will allow into heaven? Zero. Goose egg. If you've ever sinned in deed or thought, or word, you are outside God's, God's favor this morning. You are a sinner, and the wages of sin is death. And some of you are better people than other people. I believe that's true. But of course, my famous example, I always quote at this point in these messages, is yeah, the seat of a toilet is probably cleaner than a dumpster, but you're not eating off of either, and that's absolutely true. I believe some of you are objectively morally better than some other human specimens that exist. But that does not earn you a place in heaven because absolute moral perfection is required. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, says, therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. (laughs) Good luck with that. None of you are. I might be the closest one. (laughs) I hope on the radio they can't hear all that laughter that just happened. I am not the closest one, not even close. None of us are perfect, which means you need someone who is. And when I say perfect, I mean nothing's lacking in him. He's not lacking in how he represents God. He's not lacking in his righteousness. He's not lacking in what he did to achieve salvation for you. He is not lacking, absolutely not lacking in power and authority. And you cannot play Jesus in your own life. No demon can save you, and you certainly cannot save yourself. Don't listen to the elemental spirits of the world that say you, your own goodness can get you there. 
That is a demonic lie, and it is not true to what God has revealed in his word. And Paul, writing to the Colossian Christians, writing to these wobbly, just barely learning how to walk Christians, is saying, don't believe these lies. And his voice echoes across the centuries to bounce around the walls in this room this morning with the same message. Nothing is lacking in Christ, and in him you lack nothing. Submit yourselves to no empty deceit or philosophy of this world that does not agree with Jesus. Don't submit yourself to traditions of men which are out of step with the gospel. And do not put your trust in the elemental spirits of the world, even if they say that you are the ultimate power and authority in your own salvation. Don't listen to it. Listen instead to the high, beautiful song of Jesus in the gospel and put your trust in that. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for opening the eyes of our heart to see Jesus, to see how satisfying he is, how excellent he is, how needed he is. Father, that was a miracle that you worked in your heart. We can't even brag about that. God, we were blind. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but you made us alive in him. And you have revealed to us who you are through him. You've taken care of our greatest needs through Jesus. And in becoming our shepherd, you have met many of our lesser needs. Father, we look to you in trust this morning. We cling with a white-knuckle grip to the promises contained in Scripture. And we believe over and against what the siren song of all these false teachings that surround us, that Jesus is the way, he is the truth, and he is life. Father, we cling to these things. Help us also, like Orpheus, to be people who proclaim truth in a way that makes these lies that they're revealed for what they are. God, unstop our tongue this week as we're in the midst of our relationships. Help us to proclaim simply but honestly the hope that we have in Jesus. And God, in the midst of those conversations, we pray by your Holy Spirit that you would do that thing you do where you convince and convict and do the heavy lifting in people's hearts and minds. God, I pray that you destroy any false ideas that people, that people we know have about the way of salvation or about who you are. Give us certainty and understanding concerning the gospel and help us to be proclaimers of this same needed excellent truth. In Jesus' name, amen.